Welcome back to the Rugby Paper Podcast and welcome to 2024. We hope you've had a great holiday season and are looking forward to a cracking year of rugby with the Six Nations not too far away. First though, the Rugby Paper Podcast reflects on what was a crazy 2023. Joining myself and the columnist to do so is former England prop and the Rugby Paper's very own Jeff Probin. Before we kick off this episode of the pod, Christmas is coming up everyone. For any rugby super fan out there, give them the ultimate Christmas present by gifting them an official hospitality experience at Twickenham with Keith Prowse, principal sales partner to England Rugby Hospitality. They've got a place at the stadium called The Gate, and it is incredible. It's a chop house style restaurant serving some incredible steaks and an all-inclusive bar. But that's not even the best thing, as the premium seats it offers are right on the touchline between the 22s in the East Stand, which in my opinion are the best seats in the stadium. It's an incredible experience and they now only have packages left for the England-Wales match for next year's Guinness Six Nations. So I suggest you get in touch with our friends at Keith Prowse by visiting their website, keithprowse.co.uk forward slash the rugby paper. The Rugby Paper podcast wishes you a very, very happy new year. Uh, we've hope, we hope you've had a, a wonderful holiday season and that you're looking forward to 2024 with optimism. Um, the podcast is keep keeping going until the new year. We're obviously starting our Six Nations build-up later this month um before we do that this week we're going to look back a bit on 2023 um a world cup year for men's rugby we'll chat about world and domestic rugby and how it changed over the course of 2023 joining myself and the columnist today to do that is former england prop jeff probin how are you jeff very well very well oliver looking forward to uh this chat and uh you know a new year and hopefully some better rugby than we've seen in in the, in the past year Okay, well, maybe an indication of what you're going to say about the past year. I'll ask you that in a second. What did you, have you had a good Christmas? What did you guys get up to? Uh, well, the entire family arrived, so we had fourteen of them here for Christmas, which was uh, a little bit hectic to say. I got the grandkids as well, you know, so that all that lot running around going mad uh, kind of put a lot a lot of pressure on. Uh, yeah. But it's good to see them because half of my family lives in Germany now. My middle son married a German girl. I lived over here for nine years, and then they went back to Munich. Wow! Um, he so he still plays his rugby over there, though. They they yeah. do have a rugby team in Munich, believe it or not. Not particularly good, but they're they're there. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right. Well, I hope it was restful, even if it was slightly hectic. Um, let's open the rugby door straight away, then. So you already alluded to it just then. How would you define well the rugby you saw in twenty twenty three? And we're thinking, obviously, you know, the magnified rugby. Well, I, I, I'd, I'd say like you, you know the club game was its usual self. Cricket scores week in, week out, so you you can't you're not really getting true competitions. Uh, when we got into the internationals, uh, I think the the call with Eddie Jones going, Steve Balfour taking over, not having enough time to develop his his own ideas and his own squad. Uh, didn't contribute to England producing. A, a, a worthwhile performance. I think that the there's been a lot of um, positive talk about England's World Cup, whereas realistically there shouldn't be. You know, England played no tier one teams in their build up to the to the quarter the quarterfinals, um, and then you know the first time they faced what could be called serious opponents, which was South Africa, um, they lost. You know, and all right, so they then go back and play a team that they've already beaten and beat them again to become third. We're not the third best team in the world. You know, if we'd faced Ireland, if we'd faced France, if we'd faced New Zealand, 
perhaps we could argue legitimately that, and we've won those games, that we are improving as, as a nation. We need to see better direction, and hopefully, Steve Balfwick uh, would have learned some lessons from that uh, World Cup, and that will send him in the right direction going forward. You know, obviously, Owen Farrell stepping down from England as um, mate will make a difference. It will. It means that they're going to need a new captain. It means that they're going to have to find a true fly half, uh, uh, another fly half who can take the control that Farrell uh, had or supposedly had and uh, lead the team forward. Jeff, so, one really you, you know, crucial point that comes out of what you've just been saying is uh, England are going to need to find a new captain. Now, the captain... Uh, you know, there's obviously all the all the press talk, but the press talk is is that Borthwick, having spent I don't know, a match in the stands with Ellis Genge next to him, um, is looking at Ellis Genge as his next captain. What are your thoughts about that? A about Genge as a Test loose head, and B about the uh, potential if you know if you accept the thesis that Joe Marler is the best loose head that England have got and that he's likely to be fit, I think, for the um, for the Six Nations. Where where does this sit with you as a as a former international prop? Well, I, I'll be honest with you and say that, you know, England, we, we've always had, we always had a dominant scrum. One of the aspects of when I was playing is we, we dominated everyone we played against. Um, our main battles were obviously against the French, who had major qualities. Uh, and some very good dirty players, <laughs> um, but Genge is not a bad prop. He, he, he's let's put it this way: he's better than Sinclair. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, but neither of them have, if you like, the power to threaten the opposition. I think also, if you're a captain and you're you're in a scrum, you can't see what's going on in the outside. If you're supposed to be a leadership person who actually. Um, is controlling the game and controlling the way that the game is being played, um, then you can't really be a prop forward because you're in the middle of a scrum. You're only concentrating on that one effort. To be honest, I don't think captains are that important. Um, certainly when, when we were playing back in the day, yes, it's a historic thing that we have a captain and uh, it, it's a bit like being in the armed services. You know, a captain is chosen... He's not necessarily the best man to lead the team, but he's a chosen man by the coach. Uh, that means he has a better relationship with the coach, probably, than other members in the team, but not necessarily with the team and the players. Each player who's playing in the team should be the best player in his position. And in that way, you then build a team. If each player is the best player in his, in his position, he will bring whatever he needs to bring to the team. If you've got a captain who's a fly half like Farrell was, uh, or centre like Farrell was, how can he tell the props what to do? He can't because he doesn't know anything about front-row play. Um, and vice versa, if you're a, a prop forward, how do you tell the backs how to attack, where to attack, what areas of the game we're going to play? Are we going to play a kicking game? Are we going to play a running game? Whatever. How can that be? The guy who's supposed to do that is the coach. And um, is, he's the guy that defines the way the, the game's played. The captain is just the man who relays the coach's message. Jeff, it's a really good point you make about the coach and the captain, because 
I think Genji's best rugby by a million miles was when he was at Leicester, when Borthwick was there, and when Borthwick made him the captain. And I this is about three years ago now, wasn't it? I remember then writing a piece saying that Genji's probably the England captain going forward. And if you'd picked, you know, three years ago, I believe that was the situation. But now, you know, him and Sinclair have both, well, Trod Walter would be the polite way of putting it at, at Bristol as as props, in my opinion. And, and he, he goes down the pecking order as captain, in my opinion. But it seems that Borthwick does still rate him and is going to try and sort of regenerate him for England like he did for Leicester. Do you well, believe you're that? not going to want your captain leaving the field? Yeah. You know, sixty. That's minutes another one, but game. it happens, doesn't it? Uh, and, and you know, if we, the way that the way that the game's played now, front row forwards don't play for eighty minutes. No, no. Do you believe that Joe Marler is the uh, is England's best loser? I think he is at the moment. Certainly, you know what he's producing at club level, and also what him and Cole produced in in that quarter final, where they actually kept the the, the England scrum stable. And level with the with the south with the South Africans, and uh, and when the substitutes were made, the first thing the South Africans did is drive the England scrum backwards twenty meters uh, to virtually say to well I'm exaggerating there it was only about five or six meters, but it was straight in front of the referee, and it immediately put in the referee's mind then that South Africa were the dominant scrum, and that's what led to the penalty that led to the the, the winning kick, so. You know, once you've got that that idea, you've got to keep your scrum and keep the stability. Why they changed Cole and Amala, who knows? I certainly. I'm, I'm intrigued by what you say as well about the 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 role of the coach now and the role of the captain. I've always sort of thought that you know, I agree with the the premise that you pick your best players first and then you find your captain outside that. Sometimes there'll be blokes who are inspirational because of the way they play or because of their personality. That happens sometimes, doesn't happen all the time. But the idea that the coach now has supplanted the people on the field in terms of how they respond during the course of a game really bothers me. I actually think that they have far too much influence. What they say at halftime in the week or two weeks or however bloody long they get now, before the team goes out. They've got their chance to have their say. On the pitch, it should be a player's game, and it should be players who are making the key decisions on the pitch. Nick, Nick I love that. I love that. I, I think what you're saying is perfect, but you've got to remember one thing now. The coaches are paid, and so they take responsibility. And the last thing they're going to do is allow freedom for players. I mean, players say like Danny Cipriani. There's an example a player who, who has got talent, certainly, um, and shows sometimes that he can play a consistent game. Other times he goes off and does things crazy and wild. If you're a coach, why don't you pick him? You don't pick him because he, he's not going to obey what you tell him to do. He's yeah. going to do something wild. If it works, great, lovely, well done, Danny. If it doesn't work, he's threatening your job. Yeah. And, and that's... that's a, you know, and when you're looking at what coaches are earning nowadays, particularly yeah. the England coach, yeah. best part of half a million pounds, uh, are they going to walk away from it? <laughs> but, and the rest. And the rest, quarter yeah. of a million on top of that, at least. And yeah. the Wales coach at 600k. Is, Listen, is it, is I'll it, tell you what. Is, you know, that's that's it, the difference. It makes a difference. Is it not true, chaps, that the captain in, in the professional era, 
the captain's the captain's principal role is not on the field. Maybe it was the same back in your day. I mean, I mean, every, everyone in that England squad swears by Farrell. Now, whether they do it for public consumption or whether they really believe it, but I can see that he's a very, very good shop steward, for want of a better description, for the players in camp. He's quite a forceful, well, he's a very forceful personality. He, that doesn't come over in the public-facing role. He seems rather truculent and reluctant to speak and all those things that we're aware of. But behind the scenes, a bit like Martin Johnson, was precisely the same in the public-facing role when he was playing. Didn't want to engage. Would rather have been anywhere else than sitting in a press conference. But I suspect he was bloody good behind the scenes. I mean, I don't know how you found, I don't know how you found Carling, who was a very high-profile captain. Um, was, was, higher profile was, than Farrell. Did, 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 did Will stand there on the field expecting him and tell Rob Andrew what to do, Jeff? Probably not. No, but I think as uh, you know, when Will was there, he never really spoke to the forwards because he didn't really understand the forward game. Uh, and to a certain extent, we were, a, should we say, a, a group of our own in that sense. We we yeah. played our own game. Even even the coaches like Roger Rutley, when it came to the scrummaging session, he'd step back and leave the players to yeah. organize it and, and do what they wanted to do simply because if you are if you are considered the best in your position you already know how to play the game yeah sure it's just how you combine with the other players around you so isn't and, it an, isn't it an off field role principle uh not really no i mean like the captain is that off field role in as i say he's the link between the coach and the players uh, and so he brings a message, if you like, um, when you're on the field. He's the one who changes from plan A to plan B. He's the one who says, right, the referee, the, the coach said that in this position, we'll do this, we'll do that. Um, but if that doesn't work, it still relies on players using their own initiative to take a game forward. A lot of what happens now is players are not allowed to use their own initiative. They have to play by the rules. Well, that, that's, that's certainly true. That's that's certainly true. I mean, I mean, I mean co- there are certain coaches who have who have been very, very forthright in saying it's my way or the highway. Yeah. Don't you don't you dare go off script. Pay them less. Yeah. Pay them less and take them out of the script to a degree because they're they're becoming a menace in some ways. Some of them. I mean, you look at the Eddie Jones show that we endured. You know, seven years of you know. I mean. Two years of of of, um, of sort of uh, great achievement, and then the rest of it really a downhill slide, and the coach becoming the dominant figure in every single element of England rugby of, of the international side, yeah. and dominating the the whole landscape, and not in the end. To, to to a positive effect at all. In fact, it switched a lot of people off. No, agreed, agreed. And, and, so, you know, you know, I mean, I think that we've got to be years. careful. I mean, coaches have a hell of a lot to say, and and they. Sh- I, I'm not saying that they 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 shouldn't be significant figures in the game. They should be. A lot of them have earned the right to be. But you know, for them to have the sort of influence that they have, and this might it's there's it's always been an element of, of my way or the highway with coach, with some coaches. But you know, I just think that their role in the game at the moment is overblown, and I think that they're paid, you know, for a part-time role 
you know, remember, Eddie Jones's job was six months of a year. That was it. Well, in theory, it was, it, was, it was the entire year because, in theory, he'd be looking at players, making judgments, seeing how the players are playing, what they are, where they are, where they're going to fit into his thing. Um, I mean, if you look at... Was he, Jones, he was in Japan really, after the time, Jeff. Pardon? I don't agree, but <laughs> I'm, I'm saying in theory. I did say in theory, remember. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Eddie Jones' time with England, those first the, the first few months, the first portion of his time there was on the back of the development that Stuart Lancaster had done. Stuart Lancaster had taken the team and chosen the players and moved them in there. He had all the problems with the with the centres and that's why he said we won't win this we won't win this World Cup but the team the squad will get stronger over the next three three years, the next period. And that's exactly what happened. They did get stronger over that next period. Uh, but Eddie Jones had a different idea. Isn't the key element in this uh, the, the role of what you would call the, the senior player group um, in conjunction with the coach? If you look at Lions, now I, I know the Lions is, is, you're not comparing apples with pears because the Lions is a quick fix thing by, by definition. They're trying to cover an awful lot of ground very quickly to make themselves competitive against a very, very good, or theoretically a very, very good opposition. But the first thing McGeekin used to do, and I dare say other 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 Lions coaches, Gatland certainly, that almost the first thing they did was identify a senior player group. Now, not all of them might get in the test side. Rob Wainwright, for example, in '97 was in the senior player group immediately as captain of Scotland, and he only played in the last test because he didn't get picked. But that group on that particular tour were very, very influential and were as thick as thieves with the coaching team. And I'm not sure that I know who England's senior player group is Mm. at the moment. I wouldn't wouldn't like to say. You imagine Tom Curry is one. You imagine Ford is one and Farrell. But a sort of adjunct to this is, is, I mean, this concept that you pick a captain because he can talk to the referee without upsetting him. I mean, it's just bollocks. Well, yes, I know. Also, this this concept of co-captain is also bollocks. You have a captain, and like Chris said, I think a senior player group is quite important. But you don't have co-captains and vice-captains. You have a captain and get on with it. I mean, if you're a referee, you've got three people on the pitch, one captain and two co-captains and vice-captains. I mean, it must be mental. You've got to remember that in theory, again in theory, only the captain can talk to the referee. Yeah, and not and pretty sparingly, as I remember. And pretty sparingly, as you say, but only the captain. But you look at the game now, and everybody's talking to the referee. Some of them uh, are swearing at him or whatever. You know, you can see that. You can see what they're and they're talking, oh referee. You can see you don't have to be a lip reader to, to understand what's going on. Now, the fact is that the referees have lost elements of their authority. And what the what the coaches are doing with by picking captains who are seen as iconic is putting pressure on the referees. It's a way of putting pressure on referees uh, that to help to, if you like, move decisions in your direction. Didn't really work with Owen Farrell, did it? Uh, well, Owen was was. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, how can you say he was more inclined to abuse the referee than actually discuss the to the ref, talk about something to the referee? He was more inclined to, to use an instant reaction, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, well, it was just the expression on his face and the tone of his voice. He 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 could actually have been offering the referee a million pound loan tax uh, interest free. But the way he did it was almost guaranteed to put people's backs up. Borthwick was terrible at it. When he I don't think there. Borthwick was terrible at it. No, I don't think Johnny, Johnny Sexton's not great at it either. But, but there's an interesting thing. You know, Owen Farrell, as we're all saying or agreeing, didn't talk to referees well. And yet he's perceived as a very good captain because of his, um, his relationship with his players. And yet yeah. there are some players who refused to speak to him ever again because of the way he spoke to them and the way he talked to them and the way he reacted with them. And some players have been dropped from the squad as a result. So, you know, Owen's had a, an impact on on players, uh, some of it positive, some of it negative. You know, do, do we believe that he's been this wonderful guy in the changing room that everybody loves and wants to kiss and cuddle and keep him close to them? Uh, when you when you hear some of the stuff outside, but that'd be the same for any team, any club, and any uh, captain, wherever and any captain, are. any anyone who's not thriving under a particular captain is going yeah. to bear a bit of a grudge. I mean, it may not be excessively deep, but it's going to be there's going to be a, there's going to be some um, frustration and dissatisfaction there, isn't there? If you're not if you're not getting picked, you don't have to be Danny Cipriani to fall out with your captain, and that can happen to anyone who's not being picked. I mean, Sam, Sam, Sam Warburton was a was, was a hell of a player, and he's a hell of a good analyst as well. Yeah. But you know, when um, Warren Gatland came out before the 2017 Lions tour or in 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 the Six Nations with Wales beforehand, and said, you know, made it clear that even though he was a he was a hell of a player, one of the main reasons that he was his captain was because of his his handling of referees, because he was brilliant at handling referees. And I'm thinking, crikey, you know, I mean, he shouldn't be able to talk to referees enough to, you know, be brilliant at handling them, if you know what I mean. And that ship yeah, sailed, did in it, as, as yeah, Jeff well, says. Told the ship all sorts of ships have sailed, Chewie, but it, it shouldn't have sailed. No, no, I don't I don't disagree, but it, but it has. But, you know, you have to... Well, we need to sink it. <laughs> If you think, if you think, if you think back, oh, you know it's terrible to do this. Be, <clears throat> be the man standing there with a pint of beer, resting on his belly, saying it's not like it was in my day. But in terms of how you dealt with referees, you know, it, as a front row, you couldn't say a word to a referee if he penalised you for a scrum going down or whatever. You'd get up and you'd look at him and you'd just shake your head and walk away. That was that was the the most you could do. Um, it's it's changed. It's changed in the way that players are doing it. The fact that referees are, are going to coaching sessions now as well uh, and being employed by coaches to oh. teach players is also, if you like, damaging. But referees are also coaching on the field, Jeff. I mean, Johnny Sexton actually asked in the game against... Um, in, in, in the game where they were knocked out, it was against New Zealand. No, it was against South Africa in the pool game. Whoever yeah. refereed that game, Johnny Sexton was heard asking him to stop coaching the Springboks at the yeah. breakdown. Yeah, um, and, and when you were playing, you didn't you didn't have that level of chit chat from the referee. We saw no. it near, did you? We so now a conversation has developed. Yeah, yeah. Against, well, the, uh, 
with referees with verbal diarrhea who can't shut up. Only it's only the French. It's only the French guys you don't hear because they can't speak English. But what's happened, Chris, is that that they've they've literally the referees are taking over a part of the coaching role, and and you can understand why. It's it's simplicity. If you're told that if the referee's told that he's in charge of the scrum, so he's standing there, he's actually coaching the way that these. Mm. These two scrums come together, and he's you know, given a fifteen. Oh, you're up too high. You're down too yeah. low. Put your leg back. Put your leg forward. He's doing all that, isn't he? and they're also under pressure to get a game going, aren't they? Under massive pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, despite a fifteen stage engagement, well, it, it's not. But it's not just as you know. They didn't make that decision. That's the bloody lawmakers. Well, yeah, yeah, but but the lawmakers, you know, well, look, there are still laws. The laws are. For, for the scrum, for instance, the ball, despite the fact it's now allowed to be put over on your side, has to go in straight. The ball never goes in straight in the scrum now. It's put in the second row. Yeah. Every time the referee should be penalising that, and yet he's letting it go. Yeah. It's, also the it's also a law that the should not be passed forward. You know, it's not supposed to be debating stuff before lineouts, but they all go off into little groups, have a, have a conversation, and then walk slowly to the lineout. I mean... <laughs> The delays in the game that are created now are ridiculous. Intriguing is that referees still have a hell of an armory when it comes to um, uh, establishing some control on the field, and we we talk about it. We've talked about it many times, I think, on the podcast. But the idea that only occasionally. Do you see a referee march somebody back ten meters for, or a team collectively, you know, for back chat, for continually trying to, you know, subvert the process of the referee getting on with his job, you know, with trying to swing decisions and so on and so forth. I mean, they have the armory there, and uh, you know, I mean, they can yellow card people if need be, if it, you know, if it gets bad enough. So. You know, I just don't understand. It's a permissive sort of approach that says we want to engage with the players, but you engage with the players too far and you get bloody mayhem. Exactly. Yeah. How true that is. You know, that's one of the things when, when we were playing, you couldn't engage with the players. And even when you got sent off, you'd go off to the East India Club or wherever it was, where the disciplinary panel were. You walked upstairs and the first thing they'd say to you, there'd be six men sitting on the table in front of you. And the first thing they'd say is, do you believe that the referee is the sole arbiter of the game? To which you had to say, yes. The next words were, right, you're guilty, what's your mitigation? (laughs) The referee had total authority. Now he doesn't. Now players question him, they challenge him, they say, check with the TMO. Have a look at, ask the TMO if they, you know, to delay things. New Zealand in the final, you can hear Warren, uh, Wayne Barnes shout, no knock-on. Then two minutes later, he disallows a try for the knock-on that he said was no knock-on. Mm. You know, for the New Zealanders. How can you, you, you can't blame players, in a way, for the lack of decisions that, are, that referees are making and relying on TMOs. Yeah. Players should still not abuse referees should still not be talking to referees. The captain should still be the only player who actually talks to the referee. Um, but you have to let you have to let the, the referee make the decisions and not rely on the TMO. 
Uh, did, did English players have to go to the East India Club for disciplinary hearings, Jeff, or was it just the Colonials? Uh, no, I think we all did. We, we you know, I think the the RFU used to have the top floor there, didn't they? So, you know, you got there used to club rugby there, or, or, It's mainly club rugby. The subversive Hewitt structure. I think I was playing for old. I think I was playing for Ilford Wanderers the first time I I attended a disciplinary hearing. Playing against Bridgewater, their prop punched me, so I punched him back. Yeah. And they never ever see the first one; they only ever see the second Indeed. one. The referees. The, the the message from this conversation was rugby was better during the days of empire. Possibly, <laughs> but I wasn't around then, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of us were. You were talking about over a century ago, longer. You were a, a, a post imperial tight then, head, but you yeah. weren't. <laughs> Before Chris gets too non-politically correct, um, Jeff, I just want to ask about your column that you wrote recently. Obviously, an RFU hybrid deal of sorts is on the horizon. Um, the general discourse around it is that, well, people don't really understand how it's shaping up to work, but you're feeling, well, you're not overly satisfied with how your understanding of how, how it would look. So just talk about that a little, little bit. We spoke about Henry Arundel and the implications of him moving to France and called again for hybrid contracts last year, um, last week, sorry. Talk about your your um, gripes with it. Yeah, the, the hybrid contract, you know, why would you need it? In theory, the RFU have had the professional game agreement for, for ages, which pays the, the premiership for the release of players to the coaches. So the coaches would have extra time outside the international window uh, provided by World Rugby so that England would have a better chance of uh, winning those games, those international games. Uh, that was the whole idea of it. That was the reason that the RFU were paying hundreds of millions of pounds a year to the Premiership so that a, an England coach would have access to players. Now, is it, how is his access going to be any different with this hybrid contract? And, I mean, if you look at the hybrid contracts, as, as they're being said, that what they're saying is that it gives the England coach more control. He'll be able to control the fitness, etc. They were doing that back in the amateur days. As I said, we, we all got an independent fitness thing that we had to go and do. Um, I've still got mine upstairs. I could show you the papers if you want. Um, and it was from Rex Hazeldean, who... Was, who is actually the guy who's taught most of these fitness people how the game was, how the fitness structures have gone at clubs. Um, a hybrid contract as well. They're saying it's 150 grand. Well, if you've got 10 games roughly in a year, under the current system, a player would be getting around about 200,000. 200, so they'd be earning more money by just having the match, match payments rather than he would uh, by having a hybrid contract. It's also not guaranteed that the clubs would reduce uh, their their wages to players. Players on a hybrid contract may be seen as special players and therefore get more money. That There's no definition of how this is going to help club finances and how it's going to help the RFU, how it's going to help junior club rugby. It's still only very limited to the premiership which is now limited to 10 teams. They're saying about the championship, but they're not saying about any more money than the championship. 
and how uh, how many how their squads are going to be affected by this um, moving players out of the Premiership. Uh, one, we're all assuming that players in the Premiership would be so good that the Championship will will hire them. But how are they going to pay them? And Jeff, also, there's the there's, there's the principle of if you look at any inter, any any club squad now, the principle is pretty well established that you're going to have 25 to 30 percent of your players injured at any given time. So yeah. if you're handing out, you know, hybrid contracts, 30 percent of those players are going to be unavailable to you. What are you going to do with the guys that you've got to call in? How's that gonna? How's that gonna settle? But that's you know. the other point as well. They're saying that they're they're going to have a squad of about fifty, and they're only going to give hybrids to about twenty five. So there's still twenty five players, yeah, who brackets are in the England squad who are not on hybrid contracts. Absolutely. So what's going to happen? Are those other people who have been in, who are in the England squad who are not on the hybrid contracts? Are they still going to get a match a match payment? I don't know. It works in cricket. I mean, cricket's got a similar system, isn't it? There, there are a number of central contracts, quite small, um, 13, 14, whatever it is. But there's a hell of a lot more players involved in the various forms of international cricket that England play who are not on those contracts. And, and are therefore, at a sort of lower level of, not of esteem exactly, but I know what you mean. They're not yeah, and it's, quite as special as some people who do have. And it's, causing, and it's causing problems, Chris, isn't it? Um, I, I, it is it is causing positive. I mean, cricket's got its own complications, obviously. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think Jeff makes a number of good points. I, I assume that a hybrid contract would give Borthwick some kind of say in how often and when a player plays for his club side. Yeah. What what's really bothering about so that? That's where the more influence. That, that's yeah, but, where I think but, the but, new. But, but what's what's bothering, Chris, what's bothering the about the whole that's thing a, is that what what bothers me about the whole thing is that the RFU are sort of floating these ideas into the ether without having considered all the permutations that we're now talking about, or if they have considered them, they haven't bloody spoken about them. No. So. You know, I mean, it's just bloody not joined up. It's not joined up in any way, shape or form. No, they they, they will Connor out, didn't they, to say all the things uh, that you would, you, you know, you would expect someone in his position to say that we want to be, you know, we should be the best in the world in blah, 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 blah. And this is going to help us on that road and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he said a load of things, but the de- the devil's always... Where's the, the detail? Stuff, Give us no detail. A, B, C, D, E, F of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it but nick it's as i said they've been doing that already we've had the professional game agreement that gave the money it led it left the england coach whoever he was what going back it left them in charge of the players they they had access to their players they did the training they did it's just by changing it to a partnership the changing a name to a partnership doesn't change the fact that the rfu are going to spend an awful lot of money which basically isn't helping the game. No, I agree. It's not going to help the game. I mean, we've got a situation now that we know the championship are not happy with what they're being told. They're being forced down the road with threats that they'll pull up teams from from the first division uh, instead of the championship to come in there if, if they won't agree to it. I mean, the RFU should not be threatening clubs 
No way. It, it, it should be it should be explaining to clubs the benefits of this Absolutely. and how these benefits will work. I mean, the reality is is that rugby, certainly junior club rugby, has suffered tremendously by what the RF by what Ian Ritchie did when he um, when he doubled the contract. Mm. You know, I mean, all right. Three months later, he worked for the Premiership, but uh, well, that's that allowed him pure, to... pure coincidence, Jeff. And um, a pure uh, coincidence. I know. Uh, I know. I, I mean, uh, on, on the on the cha- on the Championship clubs. I mean, to play devil's advocate just for a second, I I don't think they've helped themselves, and I certainly don't think they've helped the English game. But if you want a meaningful second division with promotion and relegation, which I think most people as sports lovers looking on from the outside, would respond very positively to. You want that jeopardy at the bottom of, you know, you want action at both ends of the Premiership, all that stuff. But I I keep on going back to Bedford as the classic example. They're a pain in the ass. And I've been for years because they all, they had no intention, apart from the one year they came up and went straight back down, they had no intention of going back up into the Premiership. They didn't want to. They went on record as saying they had no intention of wanting to. Old Jeff Irving always used to say, "We're perfectly happy being the best of being the thirteenth best or the fourteenth best side in England." Yeah, well, but Chris, that doesn't help you develop Chris, a meaningful challenge. Chris, Chris, why? You know why? The reason is is because of the the pressure that's being put onto the Premiership clubs. The fact that the Premiership itself has ring fenced itself, but it ring fenced itself prior to the ring fence, by by its ground size. With its minimum criteria. Yeah. Minimum well, criteria. Well, I think, I think that, that, go, I I think think that goes. And what's happened, I think I think what's happened in, in pre- the Premier League, if the Premier League can accommodate Luton, where opposing supporters have to walk through someone's house to get into the ground, and it's yeah. tiny, it's absolutely tiny. So they've bitten that bullet. In football, promotion and relegation really is sacrosanct. Yeah, and it's wonderful, and it's wonderful for it. So I do think that the minimum criteria idea that will be that be the first thing to go. If there was a meaningful championship populated by clubs who wanted, genuinely wanted, to go up into the Premiership, and I know this throws up a lot of complications over financing and all those kinds of things, but if you want a meaningful second division, it's got to be properly meaningful from both sides. Chris, I agree with that, uh, and you know I played for Bedford. Hmm. I played for, oh, it's for years, uh, back in the day when it was uh, <laughs> when it was professional. So did uh, half the Saracens team. Yeah. Harsh words Indeed, but Bedford never wanted to get promotion. They never no. wanted to get promotion because they knew that they couldn't afford it. Yeah. They knew they couldn't afford to pay their players the money yeah. that play, professional players needed. Their their ground capacity, they couldn't afford to build the capacity up to the levels they got. And, you know, look at the look at the, the teams in the Premiership that have great stadiums but never fill them. Oh, well, no, absolutely. I buy all it, of those It's a growing process. When we compare it with football, you know, football took over 100 years from its professionalism mm. to get to the stage where it is now, where it's... Where it's We've tried to do it overnight. You can't do it overnight. You make the same argument in French rugby, Jeff. Prodi de, you do not play in that second division unless you have the capacity attached to the desire and the intention to play top 14. 
you don't you're, talking, you're talking about French rugby, but, but French rugby is, is very, very different. I, 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 I know, I know, because I've got, I've got a house in France. Right? <laughs> but the, the, we live, we've got a little village. They're level seven. They play level seven in France. They win a cup and they send out banners, champions mm -hmm. of France. The whole village goes and watches their matches every week. The village pays for the, for the pitch for the pitch maintenance and everything like that. And that's what happens in France. The the, the mairie pays for the stadium. Hmm. It's it's not necessarily the rugby club that's paying for the stadium. They're just paying the wages of their players. Yeah. Right? The it's the the stadium will be paid for by the town. So it's a different. It's a different. It's a very different piece. But I'm just talking about the basic principle of, of almost alone in 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 world rugby. I suppose you could argue that Japan has a now has the beginnings of a thriving multi division promotion and relegation driven domestic tournament. But that's fine, actually, in completely different ways, you know, by big companies and all that kind of thing. That's fine. But but France over over a hundred years or so certainly has got. A second division that operates in the way that you would want it to operate. And I'm just making the point that if you're trying to replicate or even half replicate that in England, you cannot fill the second division with clubs who don't want to go up. You can't. I agree. The, only way you, the only way you could do it would be if, if the RFU or yeah. local councillors fund, fund yeah. the, yeah. the, the stadium. There's got to be a better For a, for a rugby yeah. club to, to yeah. try and fund the stadium, given the minimum amount of support that they get, is virtually impossible. Listen, the, the RFU's been in business for, you know, for a very long time, Jeff, and it's been sitting on its hands where this is concerned. You know, they should have been in talking to local uh, councils and authorities for, you know, the last bloody 30 years or so about this. You know, and they, and as far as I'm aware, they still do very little or nothing about, you, you know, on this sort of front. Um, yeah. As far as Bedford are concerned, they are the one, you know, the one club who said that they didn't um, see promotion as the be all end all, didn't want it, etc. But if Bedford had seen, you know, anything other than a restrictive, you know, restrictive cartel practices from the Premiership, they would probably have wanted promotion. And I actually think that they do want promotion now. Yeah, so, I, I'm, I think we ought to get Bedford in to defend themselves over here. We've given them a bit of a shoe in. And I've, I've made the point that Chris made in a column a while back. But all I would say about Bedford is that they are, in their own way, a brilliantly run club. Oh, yeah. They have yeah. capacity crowds every Saturday. They've got supporters clubs, dining clubs, sponsors. Um, they don't renege on payments. And they will be sitting there and looking, you know, look, we haven't done a London Irish. We haven't done a Worcester. We haven't done a Wasp. No. We haven't done a Jersey. We're here. We're yeah. here. And we, we might realign now. If the game can just organise itself so that we don't go bankrupt, if we get promotion and come down, yeah, they don't so tell we us go we've bankrupt. got to build a ten thousand seater stadium within a, within. Well, a yeah, we need that, a system that whereby we can that jeopardy. You you've got the jeopardy of promotion relegation. You haven't got the jeopardy of going bust or not. And I think yeah. Bedford would join the party instantly if those, that was the situation. Those, those criteria well, have to be visited. Obviously, I'm I'm just making the, the the general just the basic point that if people are serious, oh, I, I about agree. Totally second tier promotion and relegation, it must be possible populated by people who have a business plan. I'm not saying they've got to do it all themselves, but can show and demonstrate a realistic intention to come up and look at the business uh, plan. Look at the business plan that Dickie Evans had down in Cornwall. 
and the stadium for Cornwall. No support from the RFU to getting behind it. Adam. Well, not a fat lot of support from the local council either. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. One thing you're all forgetting is, is I, you know, I agree that Bedford would go up and willingly go up if there wasn't all the pressures that, that, that there are on them. But the, re the reality is, is that rugby support is, is declining. The only team that has ever really had uh, major, major support over many, 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 many years is Leicester. You know, they're the only ones who, who got crowds, even in the, in the amateur days, of 20-odd thousand people coming to watch them. Occasionally, yes, there were the, the special games that happened at Twickenham where there'd be, you know, 35, 40,000 people go and watch a club game. But generally speaking... Even with Wasp, I played at Sudbury, you know, a crowd of three, four thousand. That was the limit. And the idea that suddenly there's going to be these mass crowds mm. forming in various parts of the country to go and watch rugby is completely naive and completely mm. off the wall. And, and so what club would invest the money that it takes to build a stadium to house people that are never going to come to the game? Yeah, so... So this last weekend and these record crowds that they've had um, in the Premiership, which have basically they've been sold in over the course of a year or, or, or whatever else. What do you think of uh, of that in terms of showing that there is a wider audience for um, you know for the club game? Well, you've got to catch, you've got to catch twenty two, haven't you? If 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 you're getting um, if you're getting a bigger TV audience, right? Many people won't go and watch the game. So you've got, to cross, you've got to cross. They take money off the TV. If it's being shown uh, on, on the number of TV channels, then arguably less people will go to the ground, spend the money and stand outside and watch it on a freezing cold winter to watch a, a rugby game. Um, so you've got to catch 22. Mm -hmm. Yes, they say record crowds, but record crowds, you know, Saracens. Saracens many years ago got Mark Evans to do a, an assessment of the average crowd that they needed and the average crowd they needed many, many years ago was just over 15,000 for each game they played. Um, they now have their stadium. The, I forget what it's called now, but it's only 10,500 or 10 or 11,000. So they knew years ago that they needed 15,000 spectators weekly to be able to break even back then. Yeah. They weren't paying the levels of salary that they're paying to their players then that they are now. No. Now, if they needed that many players, uh, spectators then, how many do they need now? And the fact that their stadium isn't big enough to house that number of, 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 of fans is, is, a, is a crucial point. Yeah. That club knows that if they build a stadium that's big enough to house that or they buy a stadium, that could bring them to the, to the edge of financial ruin. They don't so fill the stadium very often. Sometimes they don't. They don't fill the state even the ten thousand seats. They don't fill. No, no. With all their with all their stars, you know, yeah. Owen Farrell, etc. Yeah, yeah. It's a so, it's a strange dynamic. You know, but people watch it on telly. We don't know how many people, uh, how many fans, Saracens have got on, on the television side of it. Uh, nobody ever goes round and. Ask people what what clubs do you support when you're watching telly. 
So we don't know that. They no. could have a million fans. It's, it's a very difficult them. circle to square. I agree with all of that. And, and to go back to football again, I know it's a parallel universe and it's a poor comparison in many ways, but they are still absolutely iron about not having live football at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. It's the, the Premier League matches are never screened at that optimum, what is still the optimum kickoff time no. for most <laughs> clubs. They won't no. do it. They will not do it. I know they shift fixtures around to hour past 12 and hour past 5 on a Sunday or whatever it is, but the bulk of games are played on a Saturday afternoon and they will not allow those to be screened live. Yeah, but, um, you know, arguably, if you, you don't want to screen them live, you know, so because then you are, if you screen them live, you are going to interfere with the potential audience. You'll see, will a, full, you'll see a drop-off in the game. You will. Yeah. Of course you will. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. you know you can understand that you can understand. Just going, yeah. just going back to the um, the England thing. One of the things that I find very difficult to square is is that the more time England coaches tend to get with their players, the worse the England team tends to perform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be that could be true. That could be true. You know, you know arguably, certainly, Steve Bullwick he hasn't really been given enough time to get his feet under the table before he's had to face. Uh, you know, major competition like the World Cup, you know. So we still don't know with Steve. I mean, at the end of the day, he only had one year as, as head coach at Leicester, which Leicester won the championship, the premiership. Uh, but, um, you know, arguably, we still don't know where he's going. Um, he, he brought in most of Leicester's coaches with him, hasn't he? So we can expect uh, England to play like Leicester. <laughs> We've yet to see Borthwick's England really show its face. Um, I, I mean, you would hope, wouldn't you, um, that at the beginning of a World Cup cycle, he, he whatever whatever radical things he feels, um, and maybe Steve doesn't feel as though he has to do anything radical at all. He might not be a radical man in any way, shape or form. It's quite possibly the case. But you would hope that he starts relatively soon as to say, immediately in, in you know, we had a long discussion the other week about, you know, shifting players around, maybe Freddie Stewart playing in midfield and, uh, you know, what are you going to, you know, what are we going to do about the foreign-based player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would hope that there'll be some signs of a new, of what Borthwick seizes his England side taking shape, not the final version, not the finished product, but just beginning to take shape. Um, from this Six Nations onwards, I think he's got an actually very interesting. Steve, yeah, Borthwick, he needs, he needs uh, Steve get... Borthwick's had a very, very long time in the saddle in international rugby. He's He's been assistant coach to Eddie Jones with Japan. He spent four years with England, hmm. at all, admittedly all as assistant coach, also with the 2017 Lions. So we're not talking about a, a bloke who's an international novice here. No. He's, a, he's a novice in terms of being a head coach. And that means he now has sole responsibility for selection. And on the basis of what we've seen over the last year, that may be the area that is an Achilles heel. And we're going to find out this year because be the first year he... that he needs to start making change. He wouldn't be the first. <laughs> he wouldn't be the first to fall to slide down the selection slope. That's for sure. No. Yeah, I mean, he's, this is this, that's the key, isn't it? You know, ultimately, he's. He's really at the start of the of the next World Cup. Yeah. Now, and he's got to look at his players and say, right, who's going to actually be around 
uh, and still playing at the best in four years' time. Yeah. Uh, which of these players can I use to develop new players coming into the squad to help me develop the England side? Uh, and then you've got to think to yourself, in, his, in the back of his head, he's, he's also thinking, what can I get away with with the RFU? How many games can I lose before suddenly they start thinking of replacing me? He's well, this, is, a, this is the exact time when he shouldn't have to deliver, not on the results front. This is the start of the World Cup cycle and England patently need a rebuild. There are people who have already quit, like Courtney Laws. There are people who I wish would go away from the international scene. I won't mention, I mean, he, he will remain nameless, Manu Tuolangi. Um, but I do think, I do think that the RFU, if they're going to cut him any slack at all, which they, I think they should, having gone through the trauma of last year, I think this is the time when they cut him some slack. And if the Six Nations, if he makes changes during the Six Nations and they don't come off for him, or and then he goes through the summer and it's a bit rough, then maybe there's a little bit more heat around him in the autumn. But he's he's, he's got to have a run of games where he doesn't have to deliver. I mean, it's not... It's tournament rugby, but it's not the big tournament rugby. I mean, I mean look, he got... He got he, got given a hospital pass by Eddie Jones. Yeah. So he's had a year in the job. Now, I would have said that that sort of um, opportunity was the opportunity that he had. No, There were no expectations of England going into the World Cup. Really very, very low. There were no expectations of England when he took over in his first Six Nations. You know, the World Cup warm-ups were a bloody disaster. You know, Jeff said... Where where England actually do sit in the in the world hierarchy is a lot lower than third place. That's for sure. And you know, I, I sort of think that in some ways he's had that opportunity. So now what he has to do is to start to deliver in terms of selection and in terms of showing. I I agree with you. I don't think everybody should be absolutely you know pistol to their head when it comes to results if you're building a new team. But in terms of intent, in terms of how close they drive the best and so on and so forth, that's absolutely crucial. If, it, if England had lost to Argentina in that first World Cup pool game and either not got out of their group or been blasted out in the quarterfinals it, with a really bad performance, having finished second in their group, that pistol would be against his head now. Of course it would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's standard practice, isn't it? You know, uh, that they'd, re they'd review it because the RFU wants results and, and they're not overly keen on looking four years forward. I mean, the problem we've got, again, it comes back to something, an old thing that everyone keeps uh, writing about every week in the rugby paper, the fact that there's no pathway now. You know, we've got, we've got the academies, which are all signed up or a lot of them are signed up to public schools and this, that, and the other. Um, there's no county rugby, so to speak of, in, in, to allow late developers the opportunity to come through the system as it used to be when back when I was playing. Um, and divisional rugby as well, the same sort of thing, which are, which are things that both Ireland and New Zealand do. You, you could argue that France is the only country in the world that doesn't have a pathway system as such. So, um, but its club game provides provides the the equivalent of because it's joined up. Exactly. Uh, whereas our club game doesn't. Our club game, you know, we've got 
we've we've got so many foreign players. You know, you've got you've got a couple of foreign players playing in your squad. They can make a player look a lot better than he is. If you've got, say, one of them, uh, an international fly-off from one of the Fiji or whatever, and outside in the inside centre would look a lot better player because the international player is playing inside him. So you can't judge those players. You take that player out of his club and put him into a, a pathway, which is a county or a divisional side, where you've where he's with completely different people. You can see how good that person is. England no longer have that. They've got rid of it. They've closed the door on it. Where as soon as the RFU uh, agreed to the fact there would be no level of rugby between the Premiership and the England side, they destroyed the whole pathway system that was that had been in place for over a hundred years. I mean, I would say, I mean, one of the things that I least like about the Premiership cartel is that is their insistence that anybody who plays for England must play in the Premiership. For me, if there is an outstanding talent in the championship and the England team coach wants to coach him or bring him in to an England training squad, he should have absolute right to do so. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Not only the championship, but anywhere below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, anywhere that there is a, a, a player who shows that they've got the ability, yes, okay, he's not playing at a high standard week in, week out that the Premiership uh, says it plays at or, or wants to play at. Um, but, you know, he might have the chance if you can move him up through the system. The hybrid contract thing might be a good thing if you actually were looking outside the uh, the Premiership for players as well. But just by keeping it within the play, in, in the Premiership, an England coach has... You know, we've supposedly got the more players than everyone else in the world. But an England coach has less than 200 people, he, 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 players he can choose from. You know, if, you want to you think, if you want to think outside the box on talent, why don't you get that 16-year-old dance player and make a hooker of him? At least he'd be able to his <laughs> He looks like alignment. George Shooter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, there, there's things. There's talent. There's talent everywhere. It's just a case of finding it. Yeah. And the way you find it is by giving it opportunity. We don't give opportunity in rugby. We don't give opportunity you know, to anyone who has missed out on an academy system yeah. uh, who, at the age of under-15s, under-16s, wasn't signed up. You know, it just doesn't happen now. You know, I, Because I've nobody's got, playing. I've got no issue with overseas players playing in, in English rugby. But the numbers that there are now, and particularly in the Premiership and Premiership squads, has got to be detrimental to England. At the moment, last weekend, there were nine non-eligible inside centres playing for Premiership clubs. Nine. In Where ten is going to for his inside centres? There, th there are 30 non-English qualified props in the Premiership. You know, I mean, it's a it's a joke. You know, and it's it's English rugby that's footing the bill. Yeah, yeah, because the RFU that's footing the bill. It doesn't make any sense. No, and no. this assumption that the Premiership rugby automatically, like like you were saying earlier, Joe Cocker, a singer. He's only now five years after moving to Bath, yeah. back to where he was with London Irish when they won the championship. Joe Cocker, a singer, five years ago was an off the Richter scale talent. He could have put straight into the England team there. 
but they, you have to have this this club pathway, and it's delayed him a long time. Thank God he has got back to where he was, but it's been a really torturous process. But, but the, the, this is this is the great tension that's been with us since the mid nineties, when when the, the the game turned on its head. Yeah, there's a tension in an inherent tension between those who believe that the clubs are there to produce a high-quality England side and those who believe that the clubs are in ending it in themselves. Mm. And that's that that has never been solved mm. because no. there are still those two camps. There is, um, um, I, I'm not sure. I'm still not sure. I wasn't sure in the mid-'90s when all this started gathering pace and I'm still not sure now that if you wandered around Franklin's Gardens or even the Stoop on a Saturday afternoon and said to Joe Bloke in the stand, would you rather England won the Six Nations with three Harlequins in the side or would you rather Harlequins won the Premiership or the Champions Cup? I'm not sure he'd go with England. Yeah, but it's... It, it, because it'll... I think the way that the rugby... The, I think the rugby audience has changed in the professional era, it's much more tribal in, in terms of supporting clubs. We can leave, push the numbers of people following the game to, to one side for a moment, but the people who do, the people who do pay their money and spend 70 quid to sit in an open stand at Bath and get soaking bloody wet every second Saturday, I don't, I'm not sure that they put England above Bath in the pecking order. No, but in, and I'm damn sure that Bruce Craig doesn't put England above Bath in the pecking order. But in a in a sense, Chris, it shouldn't be a question of either or. It should be a question of of, of one feeding the other and the other feeding, you know, feeding back down. It isn't, you know, I, I'm sure you're right, you know, but that's probably because they can get into their club. Mind you, it costs them a fortune to get into a to watch a Premiership game these days as well. But uh, certainly, it doesn't cost them the fortune it would to get a, a ticket to if they could possibly get a ticket to watch a game at, at Twickenham. So there are disconnects all all the way through in some ways. But the idea that you you know that that the club game just is a, an entity in itself and and a be all and end all. And that there is no international uh, element to rugby. That is where, I mean, it doesn't differ from football, but the way in which it differs is this, is that international rugby is still the cash cow for the professional game and for the game full stop. Therefore, the international game is extremely important in rugby union. And if the clubs think that they can supplant it, well, maybe, but at the moment, the the numbers don't add up. So, I don't think I don't think they do think they can supplant it. I'm simply saying that their priorities are far more club driven within clubs than they yeah. were in Jeff's day. I mean, Watts would have taken what Watts were an ambitious club. They were a successful club, and they they were they were they were a brilliant club for years and years and years. Always at the top end of things. Always in the mix. Even when even with when us Bathonians ruled the world, as Jeff will remember, um, but what what was 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 second in command for donkeys, <laughs> um, which, which, which is absolutely fine. But but the the days when and then yeah. supplanted Bath by some distance. Well, they, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, they, look, if if you're just going to be parochial about it, um, I, I, <laughs> in, in 
In those days, to a certain degree, a club's status and stature were, was measured by its representative players, by the players it got into the in the top end of representative rugby. And you I'm know not, what? I still uh, no no no. There's I still, still some, think there's that still that something. There's still something about. There's still something about that. Uh, of course, it worked, but I just think that the game has become, in terms of its attitudes and what have you, at club level, has become much more footballized than it once was. You you get a successful England side, and, and unfortunately, you know, we have to go back some some distance to, uh, to 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 find one that was really truly successful, um, and the boost that it gives the game is absolutely massive. And we've been waiting for Godot for, you know, since then. Well, well look, what you're saying, Nick, it's, it's obvious. You look at it. Twickenham sells out 82,000 tickets for an international. Well, it did. As you're saying, Saracens, who have six or seven international playing for them, can't even sell 10,000 tickets. <laughs> yeah, the argument is that international rugby is, is the cash cow. It's what funds the game. It's what builds the game. It's what allows the game to, if you like, develop in some way or another. The fact is that uh, the clubs themselves were the ones who who said that players shouldn't be picked from outside the uh, outside the Premiership. That there should be no level of rugby. The RFU made one mistake when they did the negotiations. They used a club owner as their as their negotiator. Frank Cotton, who owned Sal at the time, and he agreed to everything that the clubs wanted instead of seeing what was best for rugby. He just agreed to no level of rugby between um, between international and the Premiership. No players from outside the Premiership can be picked for England, uh, and that includes players who go to France, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the emergency thing that, the, that was thrown and tacked onto it was when clubs started going bankrupt. But previous to that, that was it. Um, and so there were a number of elements that were mistakes by the RFU, yeah. But a lot of the problems that have been created in rugby have actually come from the Premiership. Well, they when, come when, when Saracens from... and Quinns and Northampton were relegated, surely their players were still playing for England, weren't they? Um, well, they, they, they didn't, did they? The only thing I, I don't I don't remember Mako Vunapolan not only, playing for England because he was hanging around the, only, the championship. You're saying you said Northampton, but when Saracens when Saracens got regulated, their players that's the only they're the only club that has had players playing okay. for, from from when they were in the championship. Okay. Uh, and, and so that that's always with that. the RFU. They'll make exceptions when it suits them. Yeah. They'll, make well, the RFU, they'll make exceptions for foreign based players as well if it suits them. Of course yeah. they would. Well, yeah, Wilkinson. But, there is an argument that says yeah. that it wasn't, right. the RFU, it wasn't the RFU that actually uh, got Saracens re- relegated. It was the Premiership. Well, you could say it was Saracens. Uh, who got Saracens relegated. It wasn't it, because they were jealous of they were jealous of what Saracens had achieved and how they'd achieved it. Um, you could, you know, the argument that they were breaking the, the uh, wage policy. You can't tell me now that there are no teams of breaking the limits now. I'm sure when you are. look at when you listen to what some of the clubs are doing, some of the players that the play, the clubs are buying currently. It, it's a, Jeff, you're right, it's a joke. In many ways what happens is is that they cut the knees off of of the most successful club that there that there was 
they, their infringements were, were 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 uncovered and absolutely clear, and they certainly deserve punishment, no question. But when you know that there have been infringements of the salary cap all the way along, that they've got, I don't know what their new regulatory framework is. Again, they haven't publicized it, but there used to be one bloke looking at it. That's right. <laughs> Nick, you know, you know as well as I do, as a journalist, you know as well as I do, that what made the Saracens case different was it was plastered all over the Daily Mail. The documents were there for everyone to see. Mm. They had no, they had to take action. Mm. There was no choice but to take some action. The, well, level, the, of, the, the level of that action was, was, was within the their own reason. Take but it, it was all the over Irish the papers. News. It was the Premiership that took action. Yeah. It was their own, it was the, the, their own clubs. Well, they had, had, they had to. Had, a number of them that were, were still doing it. They had to, Jeff. They would have looked completely ridiculous, had they not? It was all over the bloody paper. Well, you know, I mean, Leicester were found guilty of doing exactly the same thing about a year later and got a slap on the wrist. It wasn't yeah. by the same degree, but, you know, if you got a law, you got a law. Indeed. You know, no, I, 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 completely, I completely agree with that. But the fact is, this this was a journalistic-driven thing in it, it originally. They went to company's house and they got it black and white. They had the 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 actual pictures of the forms involved. Oh look, it's, we, it's we all very know difficult that. not to take action when it's staring well, you in the face. Remember. Sorry, I mean it, it look, happened three there's years no ago. Yeah, doubt. well, yes, yeah, yeah, and they yeah, and, okay. and, and not just Saracens, even now, that even as well. now, and got away with it. Even now, you look at it with Saracens. Let's just say, all right, we we know from 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 journalistic reports that two of their stars, Owen Farrell and Maratoji, are both earning the best part of a million pounds. How they how can they afford to be paying that? You marquee, can't tell marquee me. players. They're right outside the they're outside the salary. The but they've now only got one marquee player, haven't they? Well one of them must have taken a big and they're only allowed to have one marquee player. And that's why Owen Farrell has said he's not going to play for England. He's prepared to write off the hundred and twenty-five thousand he'll get from uh, from uh, from the RFU. Although well, you may say that, although Jeff, he's going to get that anyway, even though he can't get picked. <laughs> I mean, he's done well, that boy. <laughs> Where, where's Ollie Holt gone? <laughs> well, you've got to say, haven't you? You, you? They're offering him a contract when they know they can't pick him. Unbelievable. Is, is Ollie still around? You talking about me? Yeah, I was just listening. <laughs> he's, well, he's, good, pushing, he's pushing the button, turning off the recording of various sections. I'm waiting. He spent to the last the hour saving us from eight lawsuits. I'm waiting to pull the trigger on the 2023 awards, but I mean, it's a fair point. It's about as silent as I've been in an episode. It reminds me of um, the first time Mark Evans came on. Um, no, I was well. I'm waiting to hold pull the trigger on the 2023 awards from all of us. Oh, let's go for it! Yeah, which I think we should jump into before this conversation escalates even further. I think the general consensus is there are more questions than answers at the state of English rugby from 2023, which I know is the cliche of all cliches. Um, but this hybrid deal does have some promise and does at least show that the RFU is recognizing some sort of shortcomings. Um, Let's do player of the year first. Oh. Jeff, you 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 
talked off air about how difficult it is oh. to be player of the year for 2023. But going to come to you first. The only one you can you can say really is it's got to be Dupont, isn't it? I mean, he he's outstanding for France. He's been outstanding for France, uh, despite uh, getting a, a broken cheekbone. He still played in in the games in the World Cup, didn't he? You know, he's he's a quality player. He's he's he shows skills uh, and he shows leadership as well on the field. He had the way he's not the captain, but he, he shows leadership of the team and. Uh, he played. He's he had some great games. So I'd say he was my favourite player. And I hate to say that about scrum half. <laughs> if I was saying props, I'd say Dan Cole because I think Dan Cole did really well coming through that World Cup. Uh, and if they kept him and Joe Muller on the field, England might have gone further. Yeah, no doubt. Has anyone got any object? Well, Dan Cole's one. Anyone got any objections to Dupont and uh, some other names throw in the mix? Well, I would. I would agree entirely that Dupont has been the best player of 2023. The moments you think back over the year are Dupont moments, starting with that incredible tackle on Matt Hanson. But my player of the year would be Zia Kalusi. Uh, I just don't think we've quite got our heads around about a, a, a black South African captain in South Africa to back-to-back World Cups and doing that after overcoming an ACL injury in four months instead of eight months. Yeah, um, yeah so I'm, I'm giving it to Kalusi. But, I mean, the best player of 2023... Was Dupont again? Yeah, I'd. Um, I'm. I'm going to give it to. Uh, I'm going to give it to R.G. Snyman because when it came to uh, overcoming um, adversity, uh, just in a personal sense, you know, not only the fire pit thing where he 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 was semi incinerated, but then um, sustaining, I think, a second cruciate, complete cruciate. Uh, injury um, and then to come back in to the World Cup side um, and to in a way you know Etzebeth is a is a phenomenal lock uh, but Snyman in that game against uh, England I thought that the way that he responded when he came on was significant in pulling them through um, the mire that they were in and and the critical moment was obviously the try and it was a five meter line out. The bloke goes up to take the ball, brings it down, feeds it out. I think um, it's Faree who makes a burst uh, to the line pretty well. And the guy who he puts his, he, he's gone into the, the, the back line. He's, he's the first receiver and he sticks his hand up so that the clerk sees it. And he then takes the ball and takes it through about three England tacklers to uh, to dot it down. I thought, you know, if you ever had a uh, an instance of cometh the hour, cometh the man, uh, that was it. I think he's a, a, a great lock. I think he we've obviously not seen a huge amount of him over the last two or three seasons. The Munster haven't uh, because of uh, of his uh, injury problems, but um, I think that he's you know he's a He's a hell of an acquisition for Leinster, and um, you know, well, you know, a, a great lock, a great lock, and uh, a second mention just on the propping side. I'd sort of say Oxenche. <laughs> I thought you might say that, yeah. Uh, well, I certainly, not, I, I certainly wouldn't give it to any blokes who've played twenty minutes a week. 
Uh, I mean, I, I mean, Snayman. I mean, he was very influential. Uh, to be to be honest, I, I agree with the Dupont thing. I think he's an extraordinary figure. He's the extraordinary player of the of this current age. But very close behind him, I, I would put Damian Penno. Um, I, I would go a long way to watch him play. I just think he's full of imagination and difference. He just does different things in different ways. Um, I think he's the best right wing in the world. Um, possibly by a bit of a distance. Um, I just I love watching him play, so he'd be my vote. Um, just trying to avoid the obvious, really. No, I was going to mention Pano as well because I think post World Cup, Pano has been the standout of any of the players of the um, at the World Cup. So I think that that's got to be good uh, against Bristol seconds. Uh, yeah, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the three-minute highlight YouTube highlights of that match on YouTube are literally just him for the full, amazing yeah. for the full three minutes. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, no, Snyman's a good shout. Do you remember when um, at one point in the in about one week, Snyman and Henry Arundel were both on their way to Bath? How did that shape yeah. up? What, what one slightly quicker than the other? One imagines. Yeah, Snyman might still be on his way. I guess he's just a bit slower to get there. Whereas I think Arundel's definitely not coming. <laughs> okay, match of the year. Let's go to Brendan first. I'm sticking with my post World Cup answer on that, and that is Fiji Portugal, which represented everything good about rugby, about the World Cup about emerging nation coming through despite all the obstacles. Um, it was the two uh, the two crowd favourites of the entire tournament and they produced, you know, sometimes you get a match like that and it just doesn't happen, does it? But that was a cracking match. And I noticed this fair play, uh, World Rugby finally used their website to get the whole unedited highlights up on um, what's the website they own or the Twitter handle they own. Uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, I watched it the other day and it was as good as I remember it. A fantastic game of rugby. Jeff? Hmm, I'm thinking hard. Uh, I actually think the Ireland-France game was one of the best games. I think that was, uh, you know, I like to I like to watch Northern Hemisphere teams uh, compete against each other uh, and really compete. And and those and that was that was a game and a half. And and um, you know the quality of the play, the the way that both teams approach the game uh, was it it was one of the best games that I saw that last year certainly so that was Chewy France South Africa quarter final yeah I, I just thought as as um as an expression almost of the possibilities of rugby in the in the modern age that set new levels it, I thought it set new levels of pace and dynamism uh, it was an extraordinary match, and particularly the first half was off the scale. Um, and let, let's not forget that the, that those that quarterfinal weekend in its different ways, but certainly the two big quarterfinals pretty much saved that tournament. Um, it lifted the tournament way, way, way above anything we'd seen in the pool stages, where there were far too many mismatches, far too many. And we all talk about the heroics of Chile and Portugal and Uruguay, and they were. It's a perfectly good description, but they still got absolutely spanked far too often. Yeah. Um, so for me, the France-South Africa game was was unbelievable. And it was as much about South Africa as France, actually, because France had that whole momentum behind them, the whole crowd behind them. And they played exceptionally well as a very, very good team, a really good team. And South Africa dug 
they were down nearly as corny dug so deep to win that game. Brilliant. Ironically, that was probably the one game in 2023 that Damian Penno was actually quite quiet in. Indeed, that's very true. Match of the year. <laughs> that's 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 that, that's very true. But it, it it was a it was a hell of a match. But partly because it it also followed the Ireland New Zealand game, which was pretty damn good in itself. Yeah, and you sort of thought there's a there's the game of the weekend, and this lot turn out and play at a higher pace and if anything a higher intensity. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was an amazing game. I've got the same game written down, Ollie. Um, I think that um, in terms of international rugby, it was uh, the game at its best under the laws as they are at the moment, and a great game. What what intrigues me about about rugby union is that whatever is done with the laws, if players are you know, motivated to play um, in a and, and have the ability to play at that sort of pace and with that sort of intensity, it's as compelling a sport as as you. It's more compelling than any other sport almost for me. And uh, that game was at that pitch, and um, it was a pyrrhic victory in many ways. You know, because um, after France went out of the tournament um, on on their shields, but uh, went out of the tournament. The tournament lost um, its, you know, its, its joie de vivre, if you, if you like. And uh, um, uh, that was a, a, a great pity. But South Africa's, the way in which they dig in and they are undeniable in incredibly intense circumstances made them ultimately, and you saw it in, in, in the, their <clears throat> other teams as well, made them ultimately the right team to win that World Cup. Which like goes to, to the Sire Khaleesi argument actually as well, because if if there is a role for the captain on the pitch, uh, um, yes. you know, Khaleesi, Khaleesi doing whatever a captain does yeah. to hold the, the to hold the thing together. Uh, and to keep people calm and focused and, and cold-eyed about everything, um, then some effort. So, yeah. But also, the you know, you talk about intensity. The intensity he brings, look at it. The, you know, when he sings the anthem, he doesn't just sing it. He bloody well pours himself oh, into it yeah. every time. He Every word of it is meant. And yeah. he then carries that in, onto the field with it. Hmm? It has that, that aura. The beauty about South Africa is they play if you like old-fashioned rugby, don't they? They 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 still want to dominate the set pieces to allow uh, and to create the space for their backs to exploit. You know, so they actually still use what we would call old-fashioned rugby um, in in the sense that you know they everyone says about their bomb squad that they send on. It's not backs; it's forwards. They they still want to dominate the set pieces, and that allows them to play the game that we're sit, sitting back looking at and saying, wow, what a game. And it's the a big game attitude as well, Jeff, isn't it? I mean, it's perfectly yeah. possible that they'll go quiet for the next three years, that That's they'll it. lose games, possibly some of them quite badly. Um, um, but come the next World Cup, they'll bear. Yeah. Yeah. But forcing them the break is yeah. going to be as difficult as it ever was. Well, I'm hoping the next World Cup will, will, will be a Northern Hemisphere win. You know? <laughs> 
Dutch yeah. wood. Here we're going to get. We're going to get more. We're going to get one sometime soon. Yeah. I don't really care who it is, as long as it's Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna. Uh, I had one more written down, which was moment of the year. Rather than go through everyone individually, because we've obviously been over a few moments with um, talking about the World Cup and stuff. If anyone wants to throw any. Um, moments that need a shout out, then please do. Brendan, you're almost certain to have one, and then we'll, well move. just a searing memory uh, in a, a you know pretty mundane sort of England year. Those three drop goals by Hodgson were phenomenal. It was a phenomenal win, and it was a, so unexpected the control and precision and the you know, the magnificence of that. And you know, of all the World Cup memories, that's right up there. That was an amazing moment, especially since he did it from Saracens. It's long way kicking in. It did you mean George Ford, there, Brendan? Yeah. I meant George Ford. <laughs> that's the second time I've done that. Would you like another go at that? I'll have another go at that. Charlie Hodgson, come back. <laughs> Although I dare say Charlie Hodgson would have done exactly the same. Yeah, I think he probably would. Charlie Hodgson, so make that George funny. Ford. <laughs> Um, you just cut it out Charlie Hodgson will be really confused when he comes on the podcast in a few weeks and then he gets back to his job goals against Argentina one one sort of slightly left field thing but I do do think in terms of this this idea of of growing the game and, and, and and just and just make it trying to create the conditions in which it's not the same old, same old all the time. Um, I thought Fiji winning at Twickenham in the way they did in that World Cup warm-up. I know it was a World Cup warm-up, but it was, I mean, they they played extremely well that day, the Fijians. And I I think it did go some way to announcing or, or confirming what we've always thought about them. If they could only get their act together for in terms of fitness and disciplines and allow that to their natural skills. They did that that day in pretty poor conditions, in rather English conditions, actually. I know it rains in Fiji, but crikey, it was a, it was a big moment. And I, I think it was a big moment for them and they celebrated it in the right kind of way. And yes, they lost against Portugal when perhaps they shouldn't have done it at the World Cup, but they still had a decent World Cup off the back of that and could have beaten England, certainly could have beaten England in the quarterfinals mm. for a second and time uh so i think that was a big step up for them and i really hope that they can build on it mm. i'd like to, i'd like to think that was true but i i think that it was only because of how poor it was and they were playing that way and, yeah uh, that's the only way bath kept on winning those john player cups because of how poor was were yeah yeah you know <laughs> moment moment for me um seminal moment for English rugby uh, and for Australian rugby was uh, Eddie Jones finally being shown the door at Twickenham (laughs) and the door opening to him in Sydney and in them taking an Australia team to their first full defeat in a World Cup. I thought that it was all wrong, uh, apart from him being shown the door at Twickenham, the idea that the RFU would let him go straight to Australia with the inside knowledge that he had and an England team in the same half of the draw of Australia was unbelievably stupid. And the fact that he then crashed and burned with Australia was, um, you know, was 
very good luck for uh, Messrs Sweeney and and O'Shea. Bad luck for Australian fans who paid a fortune to go to France to watch the team. And, um, you know, what has happened subsequently, I guess, with Eddie being back in Japan is probably best for everybody. But Nick, <laughs> look at it from this point of view, Nick. If the RFU had put Eddie on gardening leave, how many plants would have been upset? <laughs> the Australia might have been a better side. <laughs> What if they pick some plants? Oh, yeah. um, they pick stuff with Dave Reddy, almost certainly. They could certainly have had a shrub I outside Arthur would have played better. Being unfair, I think we're all being a bit unfair on Eddie, uh, partly because he he always said that his his focus was the World Cups. It wasn't the Six Nations. It wasn't anything like that. Uh, and of course, where the RFU were focusing on Six Nations. That's what they believe was the most important thing. That's what bought, bought if you like, the, the differences between them. Anything was to try and look at the World Cup uh, and, and try to win a World Cup. That's that's what his goal has always been to a certain extent. And, um, you know, he missed out again. It just shows, though, uh, Jeff, it just shows how the RFU, you know, again, you know, I mean, they're, they're brief. They're, they're employing him. They're brief is to tell him what they want. And yes. the idea that, you know, Eddie thought that it was all right to just bloody well do nothing in between World Cups. It's just person, Yeah, yeah, I agree. Nick, I agree. But the person who should have sold him was the person who took the time to go over there to actually offer him vast sums of money to employ him who happens to be the man who also doubled the contract for the premiership. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yes, you know. Uh, so uh, the man who did that, who basically put the whole of the rugby union in England under financial, huge financial pressure, also employed Eddie Jones for a huge sum of money. Putting under more financial pressure. and paid the Stormers a lot of money to get him as well. Yeah. It was a massive yeah, but, transaction. But, but, but the idea but that be fair, no one was moaning about Eddie it, 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 this time after it, this stage after the 2019 World Cup. Actually, Woodward was Woodward was livid with him. Well, what they yeah, after the yeah. uh, And I, I'd I'd say Chris in the uh, press conference after the final in Yokohama, I asked Sweeney what the terms of of Eddie Jones's contract were. For exactly the reason that I thought that they'd completely blown it. Well, so I, 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 I certainly agree that he was given far too much, far too much latitude to go coaching other people and act as a consultant here and there and all that kind of stuff. You, you would think for that money, this is a full time job. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, I'd agree with you. <laughs> you know, I mean, when, when I was earning that kind of money on the independent, I had to work long hours. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm, look, the Eddie Jones debacle. <laughs> <laughs> look, the Eddie Jones debacle gave us uh, the chance for David Campadia to come on the podcast twice and probably ran to us for about a total of four hours about about just Eddie. So that sort of brings me on to the podcast episode of the year. I think he definitely deserves a mention, and if you haven't listened to that, definitely go and listen to. Well, there are two. Um, the one before the World Cup for starters, because a lot of his, his predictions do come frighteningly true. Um, 
Brendan, what was your podcast of the year? Yeah, yeah, Campo's on the podium, especially the first one when he necked two bottles of wine during during the course of the podcast and still made quite a bit of sense. Um, in second place, I'd have Brendan Venter, who I think is always incredible value, was so starkly honest about South Africa's World Cup uh, win. Uh, you know, loved it, enjoyed it, but admitted it was lucky. They got a lot of decisions going their way, but they deserved the luck because they were in the the brutal side of the draw. But the one I enjoyed most was James Waterhouse, our man in Kiev in Ukraine with the bombs falling. Um, good store, old championship rugby player, Isha and Rotherham, um, a few others, I think Plymouth. Uh, and it was such a great chat, wasn't it? He, he clearly was taking time out for about an hour and a half from what is a very, very stressful job. And he was in this very stark hotel room, and you could sort of hear stuff going off in the background. And he just talked rugby for 90 minutes and very intelligently and and very well. And I just thoroughly enjoyed that sort of merging of, of you know, rugby minds in, in rather strange circumstances. It's only one of our more controversial episodes of the year. I think some people weren't... Was too, it? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some people weren't too happy that we were mixing... Um, Mixing those two. Oh words. God forbid that we ever yeah. talked about anything. Did you have a bad response from Russian viewers? <laughs> <laughs> I think it may have been slightly yes, um, pro-Russia propaganda. But we'll we'll ignore. The robots are out that day, it, no, you're right. It was. I'm I'm glad you pulled that one out actually because it was fascinating and I loved as well that obviously tough job he has tougher than any of us have by some way you could see how thrilled he was to be able to take the time out and just genuinely talk about rugby so i think it's probably one of the more most genuine episodes we've had of the year proper journalism as well amongst other things dare i mention it <laughs> yeah for the proper journalism doesn't happen often uh, on our podcast i don't think usually it's just slander from chewy speaking of <laughs> chris <laughs> best well, podcast um... of the year well, um, the, the the best was Mark Evans' episode one because he agreed with everything I said. And the worst was Mark Evans' episode two when he disagreed with everything I said. I don't quite what happened in the interim. Um, <laughs> uh, in, all, in, in all seriousness, I wasn't present for the James Waterhouse uh, thing. Uh, but I, I, I must say that the most... The, Contrary to popular belief, and I'm sure in the vast public that watch this, they they think this is easy, but we rehearse this down to the last. You know, you've got to be right on your toes here. This is this is the King Lear of rugby podcasts. You can get this badly wrong. The most challenging was certainly, <laughs> and you with, normally do. <laughs> and, and, and I should know uh, the mo- the most the most the ch- most the most challenging sort of invigorating the discussion that I was a part of was the one with Venter. Who is always who who is always a real handful in the best possible way. He's got incredibly strong views. You never quite know what they're going to be before before he chucks them out there. But he's um, uh, I it really enjoyed uh, working with him when he was a, or, or interviewing him when he was a coach here, and um, and he's lost none of his um, he's lost none of his edge. Let's put it that way. So he, he, he it's uh, he does. Let's keep you on your toes. Good fun. So we've got two. Well, Brendan's doing pretty. Brendan Vence is doing pretty well. K and O, you got any others to add into the mix, or is it one of the? Yeah, yeah look, I mean, I I thought that the uh, the the two mentioned the Brendan Fenter um, and uh, and 
Campo, particularly the the first one, were were great. I I really enjoyed the Willie Anderson podcast. Yeah. I thought that he he came up with some some intriguing insights on on the Irish um, situation and where they were going. And in the end, I think his prediction that they wouldn't uh, quite get there was proved right. Um, but uh, I you know moments for me. I loved um, the other Brendans. Uh, Brendan Gallagher's set to with Mark Evans. <laughs> was that this year? It feels like about three years ago. Yeah, no, the first one was, first one was in 2022. That one. Um, <laughs> you you and, are now uh, known as Brendan Bollocks Gallagher, by the way. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, now known. <laughs> and I'd like to say that we've uh, we've kicked off the new year with a, a great one with uh, Jeff. Yeah. Oh, and of course, the most relaxing, the most relaxing. Oh, I know. Yes. The most relaxing podcast of the year was with Scott Hastings as he reclined on his bed. <laughs> he used to do that when he was playing. Well, <laughs> again, Jeff, you may say that I couldn't possibly. <laughs> well, you guys are right. We have started with a great episode with Jeff. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting year of rugby and hopefully a very great year of podcasts as well. So, much to look forward to. So, happy new year again, guys. And see you all soon. Good to speak to you. Good yeah, to see you guys. After a dramatic rugby world cup, all eyes are now on the Guinness Six Nations. Make it a special day with friends, family, teammates, colleagues, or clients by booking an exceptional official hospitality experience with our friends at Keith Prowse, principal sales partner to England Rugby Hospitality. Their match day experience in the gate really has to be seen to be believed. So book your experience now and make memories that will last a lifetime. Visit keithprowse.co.uk forward slash the rugby paper now. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day. <laughs>